You are listening to Radio Albion. Yet again, I welcome you, friends and foes alike, to another edition of The Orthodox Nationalist. This is Matthew Raphael Johnson, and we are at the very end of January 2024. I just got back from my P.O. Box. My P.O. Box is 304 in Tire Hill, Pennsylvania. It's not that close to me. Um, and as always, I'm just always shocked by what I, what I receive. My friend, uh, Paul from Maine sent me, I don't think he realizes this, but the final edition of my Andre, uh, Rublev icon collection. There's a number of works in Russian about him, um, and all of his icons in very high resolution. And uh, I believe Paul from Maine sent me the last one I needed. This happens quite often. And all of you who sent uh, checks and money orders, uh, letters, I thank you. So if I don't respond right away, it's because it takes me quite a while to, to get down there from where I am. And that goes for everybody. I just uh, uploaded a lengthy, well, I got it down to like 14 pages, um, 12 to 13 pages with the, without the bibliography on the Israeli settlers um, and uh, its role in, in Zionist ideology. I've spoken of that before. But today, tonight, we're going to a common topic with me. We're going to a, a topic, a person who I've been worried about for many years. And in my education, as well as my career, there are two men that I continue to go to in the secular realm for philosophical insight, and that is Plato and Hegel. And when I interpret things, whether secular or, or religious, I bring that method of interpretation with me. And today, again, we're going to talk about Hegel. Again, I like talking about him. I've, I've, I've brought him up several times because he is, A, very critical to understanding uh, our world mentally, and B, so difficult to read. You really have to be guided through him. He's very difficult and very obscure, despite his um, tremendous influence. He's also, because of that, wildly misunderstood. Let me, you know, when an academic comes across somebody that he has no choice 
but to deal with. These are people like Gogol, like Dostoevsky, like Solzhenitsyn, people like Hegel, people like Herder, from earlier generations. They don't have really the, the capacity or even the intellectual apparatus to understand them because these are some of the most illiberal people who ever lived. So they try to do what? Well, you really can't ignore these people. That's really the first thing that they try to do. You can't ignore these people. So they try to make him as liberal as humanly possible. And for Hegel, it's easy because very few people outside of a handful of specialists either bother to read him or can read him. And when you read The Philosophy of Right, one of his, his uh, last works, um, which is his political philosophy, you see really almost a an idiosyncratic primer against everything that liberalism and modernity is, are. And um, I did my master's thesis on it and my doctoral dissertation on a British Hegelian, Michael Oakeshott, late British Hegelian, um, because it's it's a way to deal with the modern world while being forced to to live in it. And so they try to liberalize him. There's another, there's a third method, and that's to just condemn him to the skies. And they bring up, you know, Hegel was a racialist. I guess most people were at the time. Um, and they try to condemn him for that. These Jews who try to condemn Solzhenitsyn and, you know, but that tends not to work because they're, they're too, they're too, uh, they're too famous. Um, so, in terms of political philosophy, not necessarily political theory, Hegel's purpose was to trace the origin of right. He was extremely systematic. And what I'm going to try to do today is, is to talk about his connection between human psychology and the nature of the rational community um, as he completely rejected Enlightenment liberalism root and branch. And but his approach was was very unique. And given everything that's happening in the, our southern border, which shouldn't surprise anybody, the idea of ethnicity, nationalism, really now is the only thing in the natural world, in the secular world, that can um, serve as a battering ram against uh, global capitalism and and liberalism. The last two weeks, I've dealt with Rousseau and then the Stoics. And one of the things that I've brought up many times in the past is the state of nature theory, something that Hegel spends quite a bit of time rejecting. Now, what Hegel tries to do is build an entire, for our purposes, political theory starting from human nature, which is, in fact, reason Reason resolving itself into action. It's the very structure of our personhood. There is no state of nature. There was never any natural state or a state where man was outside of a, a community. Part of the Garden of Eden story is that it, it's not good for man to be alone. There has to be a community, a family for man to function at all. 
And the point which I want to start is human restlessness. It's because we have not just consciousness, but self-consciousness. That fact changes everything. That we can point to ourselves, that we can point to an I, an identity, is something that Stanley, my cat here, can't do. Um, being restless is that even if we satisfy all of our material or bodily desires, we're not going to be satisfied. Pursuing the goods that Stanley wants to pursue is not really good for us. Animal life is characterized by this cycle, this fulfilled and unfulfilled desire, and the animal kingdom can't go beyond that simple rhythm. And, and it, it, apart from the fact that a satisfied bodily desire will very quickly reassert itself, but those natural desires are, are is the only thing that animal life, the animal soul, can bring about. It's not understood, it's simply pursued through instinct. When desire is satiated, that's the end of the process. For better or for worse, we are, as human beings, condemned to have that third step. Our desires are from our beginnings on the spiritual plane. Particulars can't satisfy. Only logos, our intellect, and our place in the whole can we even begin to be satisfied? So, desire then, and humans are a, a desiring entity, that's inherently based on logos because its effects on life are inherently based on reason. And reason is, in fact, our, our instinct. Reason is anything but arbitrary. And that's what makes right justice as a matter of, of nature. We conceptualize things, no matter how primitive we may be, or at a point in history we are, we have to conceptualize things. We have to have a conscious and self-conscious experience of whatever it is that we, we want. But reason, no matter what, is at the root of this experience. And so it changes the very nature of how we approach things compared to the rest of the animal kingdom. We can't. We don't, you know, we don't, we can't see particulars, individual objects, sensibles. We can't see them by themselves because there is a self-consciousness. They're bound up with, with the I, with the ego. A particular, though, is perceived only as a member of a universal category. So we pursue things. We pursue desires. But we never do so solely for a bodily purpose. We have to, however, you know, rudimentary, we have to theorize about what it is that we pursue and how it affects us. So something like food or water, this isn't just present to us, but we perceive it. We see it intellectually as showing certain patterns and it becomes integrated with all other aspects of our lives. And these multiply into what we call culture. And what I'm saying is, when Hegel said, that there's no separation between a desire and a claim to something. That's why, eventually, things like rights and duties and property arrangements come to be formalized into law. 
things are never singular. Nominalism is a great evil. But the very existence of a singular for a human being, even a primitive one, is evidence for universal. Because not only do we categorize things by instinct, into, uh, but the moral element is a claim to it. It partakes in right, the building blocks of, of justice. It's an automatic process that's always been present in our, in our actions. Maybe a bodily desire will motivate it, but it doesn't do it by itself. Now, we're not just talking about instrumental logic. You've seen these apes and dolphins do, you know, using tools, and we're not talking about that. We're talking about reason, which is something very different. That's why it's justified to refer to it as logos, the universal reason that's present in all creation. Desire is a part of us. But the nature of the satisfaction is, too, also based on reason because they're always mediated by claims. There's a right, there's a duty. It's not just we satisfy a need and move on. It doesn't work that way. Since there's never a time when we're isolated, man has always been both rational in one sense or another and always a part of a community, however small. At a minimum, we always theorize about the future. So even if we satisfy every bodily need, we at least have that to continue to provoke anxiety. It isn't even so much that we reach or, or obtain the object that we want. But it's also a claim of right. It's part of a, automatically part of a universal conception that says that this is a, this desire is a necessity and therefore I have a right to it. And of course I also have a duty to do what I, you know, need to do to procure it for myself and others. Now, I mentioned others. They're always present. This is why self-consciousness is so important. Because any claim I make has to be accepted by people around me. Again, there's no time in history where we're separated from some kind of community unified by language. Self-consciousness doesn't make any sense unless there's other beings around us that have the same faculty. So if we're denied something that we need to function, and we're, you know, therefore we're entitled to it because we need it to function, it's not just a matter of, you know, we're, now we're dissatisfied, but we're dissatisfied because our personhood has been violated. It's the, the foundation of claims to justice or injustice. It's never just a particular thing. It is inherently both a particular and a universal. It is not just a specific demand that we make at the moment. Beyond anything particular, we want others to recognize this as a this this right that we claim as having a valid foundation. And these become through consensus and language, of course. You can't function without language, again, however rudimentary. They eventually become culture, and then that becomes formalized into law. And that's where right finally becomes right in the sense that we use the term. So it's not just that something is denied, it's our universality that's denied, our, human, our humanity is denied. 
that's the outrage. That's the the anger. It's not just man. I'm you know. I'm going to be upset. I didn't get the house I wanted. I need some place to live. It's that I'm being cast away like I don't matter. That's very different. And that's why self-consciousness matters so much. It's a recognition, though, which is absolutely central to, to this approach, to Hegel's approach to political theory, automatically means that we are not only naturally reasonable, but naturally communal. But it also means that claims to things, claims to right, inherently involve conflict. There are others who are both rational, seeking to, just for themselves, procure what they need. We're doing the same thing. And there's a tendency to want to secure what we need at the expense of everyone else. We seek recognition. And the minute we do that, our desires that we know self-consciously to have the status of a universal claim. This is a struggle for recognition. This is a core Hegelian concept. And it means that right begins, not in cooperation, but in conflict. In fact, he goes so far as to say that this desire for recognition, that we are a part of Logos, that we have a soul, it is so close to us as to what it is to be a man, to be self-conscious, that we would rather die. We would we become so outraged that we'll do anything to secure what we need, not just because it's what we need, but because it denies us. We become an animal, not a human being. All animals, of course, are conscious, but only man, being rational, being part of this universal logos is self-conscious. And that's why any claim, historically, that we've made is based on logos or these universal truths. It's more basic than bodily desires. That's how reason operates. And only the existence of reason and logos can explain this. That means our spiritual ends. We will die, not so much to secure them, but to secure the recognition that comes along with them. We prefer death to dishonor. Um, and if we don't, we are then less of a man, which of course is exactly the case. That's outside of the Darwinian universe. It cannot be explained in non-biological... Uh, I'm sorry, it cannot be explained in biological terms. We have to have non-biological, non-material causes here. Now, we're not talking about the modern enlightenment distortion of what it is to be rational. But the very nature of dialectics comes from this. Property, inherently, is a matter of, of exclusion. Now, there comes a point, though, in this struggle, that we don't just annihilate each other. One faction does take over. And that's the infamous master-slave dialectic. That's the first consequence of these kinds of claims. And history begins there. That's one thing uh, we, you know, he's in full agreement with Rousseau. While he rejects the state of nature idea, especially Rousseau's version, he mentions him several times. But it is property 
a rationalized bodily desire to have access to things that we need. That's where history begins. And it's also the origin of the warrior instinct, which is very close to logos and rationality, the development of that class. Again, reason is an instinct. It's not just something that we can use now and again. We are self-conscious, and it creates motives and claims that have no connection with biology, and they can't be explained that way. It's not just self-preservation. It's the perennial war against oppression to be resisted even to death. Life is then secondary to, ju to justice, to right. But, of course, the warfare and the conflict can't last forever. There is a class that, due to their, uh, whether it be exhaustion or fear of death, initially a secondary class, who then becomes the slave class and then the working class, that ends up serving the victors. Man stipulates the conditions for his own existence. And this is why, because of the nature of the self and self-consciousness, automatically the universal and the particular are constantly at war. Solving that problem is exactly what Hengel does and exactly what people like Hobbes or Locke or Rousseau can't do. Now, Christ is the ultimate solution between universal and particular. That's the theological context here. Men die for spiritual aims, which is connected to things like martyrdom. This is why this is an inherent rationality. This is part of human beings as human beings. Then it makes a mockery of, of Darwinian uh, doctrine, claiming that reason only develops later. So, But it isn't just this universal claim. We have to show how it's a justified one. The claim is rational. I mean, if, if, if we're correct, that makes being denied all the worse. If our, and if that is frustrated by somebody, that means the master-slave dialectic has not been overcome. There is an injustice present. Someone is, well, we are, we are all conscious, parts of reality that we're just not admitting to ourselves. But we do want to come up with a solution without bloodshed, or as a result of bloodshed. And this is a rational consensus about how our interaction can be structured Again, there's no such thing as an isolated ego. There's no such thing as an individual in that sense, in the liberal sense, in the, in the modern sense. Consensus is how we arrange this mutual recognition. It's an absolutely necessary achievement, a cognitive achievement. It's a variation of, of, of the satisfaction, happiness that comes from the situation where we are mutually recognizing certain things. Far more powerful, of course, than mere bodily satisfaction. Or being satisfied in the, in the dumb sense of just having every, every bodily uh, thing uh, satisfied. But that we are correct in explaining and asserting these rights. And that is recognized by others. So consensus is the foundation of social. In fact, it is social life. Struggle for recognition is the most critical and fundamental drive. That is the structure of our self-consciousness and how it perceives things. 
men come to an understanding of what right amounts to in a community, and what emerges is an ethnic entity. It has to be. Because it has to be unified by language within which such claims have to be made. There are no abstract communities. Like There's no abstract egos. Rights and duties cannot be asserted in a vacuum, as liberalism suggests. Man is a creation of God and hence part of the universal reason in creation, and that is Logos. Now, Hegel is a Platonist of a very eccentric sort because Logos, for him, he identifies with the concept, with a capital C. Very similar idea, the fullness of, of the forms, or ultimate reality. The concept is connected to the eternal, since it does not change, just like the forms don't, and hence is the foundation for theology. Logos is truth outside time, and therefore it is monotheistic. Now, the ultimate foundation for this, God the Father, is unknowable, but Logos is partly manifest in the world in you know, time and space. The Father is eternally what he is and cannot change. If it could change, he would not be the truth, and hence would change as fashion changes. Therefore, he must be outside of time. Now, Logos, of course, also means Slovo in Slavic languages implies word. Something that partakes in this eternal truth, something with a fixed definition that presents to us an unchanging truth. So the concept is situated in time, partly expressed as a word and by word with a small w. So the world both rises to the concept and the eternal meaning that's revealed to us, but then it also descends from this meaning to the specific thing in front of me that I'm describing using language. I should say using speech, because speech implies a structure of, um, first of all, it's communal. Speech is how truth is um, conferred to us. Word and words, this is a vehicle of concept, of logos. That's what makes logos present in the world. Word in all senses. Well, that term, the order of nature comes from logos. It is a part and the origin of the created order. And it changes uh, given our fallen state in the sense that we manifest only a tiny little part of, of reality. But our freedom is connected to this. There is no freedom without eternity. From and through Logos. In other words, we have to disconnect from the material world, from the here and now, from the empirical world. Because freedom can only come from, lack of a you know, the noumenal world. Disconnect from the here and now, the before and after, the material cause and effect, and act then according to something above and outside of us. And that's the uh, foundation and necessity of asceticism. So Stanley is a cat. He's standing. He's misbehaving. He stands in, in front of me. But he is bound to the empirical world. Cat as a word is different. The word doesn't appear before me, misbehaving or not. 
Kant is a universal. It's speaking and communicating. And only in that realm can man be free. In other words, the term cat reveals the essence of this particular species. And without that word, how can we reveal it? How can its essence ever be revealed? And it also then permits us to make a judgment. A cat is is not necessarily well-behaved, but it is furry and it eats meat, it's a carnivore, has four legs and all the rest. So without that realm, there could be no knowledge. Without the concept, without logos, knowledge is impossible. Firm knowledge is impossible. And therefore, um, it's those with power who decide what the axioms of our, of our world are, what is real and what is not. Liberalism is at war. Um, well, I'm going to put it this way. Liberalism deifies the idea of time. Time without end, time without purpose. The state of nature is one of these things. The other, despite it being very illiberal, is Darwinism. Now, Hegel says the state of nature idea and the social contract is both nonsense and dishonest. I could say that it's irrational because the conclusion of the social contract is already inherent and is already contained in the premises. Obviously, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, they're talking about the land before time. They could fill it with whatever they want. But for all of them, and Darwinism included, we could go all the way up to John Rawls' uh, Veil of Ignorance. They're all kind of the same thing, where what they conclude is already a part of their, of their argument. But reason has always been a part of human nature. Human nature exists. It's just taken a very long time for all the elements of it to be manifest. Because even when error shows up, we know this in the, in the ecumenical synods, when error shows up, it's our battle against it that helps build the faith. It's never a bad thing. It's bad for those who accept it. But they should be able to listen to, to reason. You know, so many of the church fathers believed that heresy existed for non-theological and non-rational reasons. And that's the case with so much uh, uh, today. But the mutual acceptance of rights is predicated on a common language and a recognition. I mean, how often do I talk about changing definitions, using terms that exist precisely because there is no firm definition, throwing you um, off balance. Therefore, the consensus, the mutual recognition of right is based on ethnicity, race, and language, words, and then that's how it is. it is communicated and then accepted and then formalized into law. That means we talk about the nation, Ethnicity, we can't, it can't be grounded merely in a biological or even a psychological fact about us. It is a function of human nature. And we know that it is not purely biological because right can conflict with our uh, immediate biological needs. Now, this is the origin and the phenomenology of the, of the spirit. Spirit, concept, this is a term for the presence of Logos in the world. 
We, of course, experience it in microcosm, whether it be uh, as individuals or within a community. The idea is that this mutual assertion of rights and duties, that leads to the creation of ethnic groups, not abstract communities. Of course, a consensus has to be made in a specific language, also arising from reason and logos. Man is rational, hence a spiritual being. That means that the ethnic community, the nation, is a product not of biology, but as of reason, as a human instinct. Spirit, concept, logos, I, at least for our purposes, am willing to say that that is one and the same thing. Hegel says this, Spirit is this absolute substance, which is the unity of the different independent self-consciousnesses, which in their opposition enjoy perfect freedom and independence. An I that is a we, and we that is an I. It's a solution to the problem, it's a synthesis. While Hegel never used that kind of language, it's important. It is God present as Logos that synthesizes both universal and particular, like spirit and matter and everything else. That's something that the animal or the liberal can't do. You know, Augustine talked about it at great length in his work on the Trinity, as did uh, St. Hilary. Now, spirit, therefore, and the order that comes from it is absolute in the sense that it doesn't have a biological foundation. It can't change at the level of the, of the concept. So what rights we put forth are already what matters to the community, given its surroundings and specific requirements. But it retains this same... This is essentially Hegel's version of natural law, though he doesn't use the term. It's a shared understanding. The only way that reason could function at all mediated by language and hence raised. It can't be idiosyncratic. It may manifest itself differently in different places. That would be irrational. But it is specific in its universe, universality. The natural structure found in Logos that brings these two together in unity. We create practical, that is to say, actionable ways of life that justify themselves because they're correct. They're based on reason. In the case of human society, a specific manifestation of the universal, and that's where the ethnos comes from. Now, master and slave. I've been reading quite a bit of uh, Alexander um, Koyeva. I've actually never heard that uttered, so I've only read it. I don't know precisely how to pronounce it. Many of you know who he is. He's a kind of a semi-Marxist, actually turned away from that and then became a globalist. And at least he's interesting. He might not be correct all the time, but, but, but at least he's interesting. And he takes the master and slave dialectic not to literally mean slaves in the, in the sense of someone being owned by another one, but the people who rule and the people who work. So it's a much broader conception. Freedom, and Hegel says this quite explicitly, Freedom is autonomy that's born of both patriotism and self-sacrifice as a duty. The ultimate goal is to have our desires be identical with the desires of the objective nation, this consensus. So, for example, something like prestige. 
and the authority, not necessarily power, but the authority that comes from prestige, eventually we realize that this doesn't come from just victory in war, doesn't come from money itself, or even from the, the right lineage, although these things can help, it comes only from work. Work, labor, property, even in Locke's sense, that's the beginning of the claim to right. Now, why does the slave or the worker end up being the winner? You don't have to be a Marxist to believe this. He ends up being the historical winner for a very good reason. Since the slave works on the fringes of, you know, the, the classical Greek polis, one of its, one of its, as Hegel would say, one of its incomplete, things that make it incomplete, dialectic, eventually the contradiction has to be resolved. That's the pagan economy. If you read E. Michael Jones's uh, um, Baron Metal. But because the slave or the servant or the worker actually works, it's he who develops the techniques of science that transforms nature, technology, at all levels, no matter what era we're talking about, that transforms nature. The master exists only because the slave does. This is the contradiction here. Ultimately, the slave is the only free one. The master exists only because, at least for the moment, slaves are willing to work for him. He will, of course, historically eventually be a former slave, but the slave or the worker is the only one capable of producing what he needs through labor and even beginning to understand what right is, what justice is. He's the one who discovers the autonomy but only skill and work and labor, things like criticism, all that, make possible. Without that, of course, we're slaves to nature, and freedom is just simply practically impossible. Koyeva says something, Hegel does not, and, and I think it's interesting, though. You know, the master-slave dialectic, this is the initial, original uh, compromise or consensus. Um. And, it, you know, it's, it's ruled for so many, in many different ways, purely on the economic, uh, but also the political and psychological realm. Yeah, the master, I guess, is free. Maybe he sees himself as free. But it's freedom that he enjoys from birth. He takes it for granted. It never becomes an idea. It never becomes anything real. It never becomes a goal for which he is willing to fight. The slave, on the other hand, or whatever term you want to use, the, the working classes. They had to build the idea of freedom. They certainly, they were born into that circumstance. And it's only through his own labor, the growth of understanding, that this happens. It's precisely in that the slave isn't free that he can begin building the foundation for freedom in the true sense. And as a result, can appreciate the true idea of liberty, ordered liberty, autonomy, and thus be able to put it into action. And this is the origin of a real recognition. Can the master ever be recognized except by members of his own class? A slave may recognize him, but why is he doing that? Is he doing it because he doesn't want to fight? He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to die? He doesn't want to be thrown out into the woods? So that, that recognition that comes from him is, is by force. And even if it's not, even if it's sincere, it comes from somebody that, that the master believes is beneath him. Keep in mind, too, 
that labor, it doesn't just transform things into what we need. You know, this is really what we're talking about with desire. It transforms the worker, transforms us. And that's because, and ultimately the result is, the slave, the worker, can only is the only being that can fully understand what freedom is. Human history then becomes the product of the slave, never the master. Now we talked about stoicism, skepticism. Last week, Hegel, and again, I don't, I don't want to overly literalize these things with Hegel. These are very general examples. He defines stoicism and skepticism in kind of a very eccentric way, not necessarily as historical realizations. These are just ways to describe something. Stoicism is, is an early stage of the slave realizing what he is. These things are, are the mentality of the slave class, or the working class, that um, the early stages of realizing in very incomplete ways what he is. The very first glimmers of, of freedom. Stoicism, in, 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 a, in a vulgar sense, it rationalizes the, the slave's inaction. This is just how it is. I have to deal with it. Ultimately, they, they all come from this irrational fear of confronting the master. We talked about what it is to give in to fear. But they'd rather not have yet another bloody war. I mean, these aren't historical claims. But what Hegel's talking about is, is how the self-conscious, logical mind over time develops. Skepticism tries to negate the relationship entirely, the master. Playing word games. Well, what does free really mean? How free is he really? How bad off am I? And you could cherry pick and come up with, with lists of why it isn't really so bad and who really knows what, what the truth is. Now, Rene Descartes began with the, I think, but he doesn't generally answer the question of what it is, what entity is doing the thinking. He may be focused on the thinking part without focusing on the, the thinker. This is a matter of, of self-consciousness. Man both thinks and also reveals the nature of what he thinks to others in language, as we've already said. Words that have a socially significant uh, meaning refer to stable definitions. Speech uses words to facilitate communion, reveals being, and thus it has to be ethnic in nature. We talked about this briefly with Heidegger. Self-conscious is this self-identified I. I is inherently a communal being, and in Descartes' you know systematic doubt, I think therefore I am is the only truth. By the way, he took that from Augustine. The only truth that I can't deny without contradiction. But thinker, how much really does he doubt? He didn't make himself. He didn't make his surroundings. He doesn't make uh, necessarily everything that 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 he needs for survival. So, the cogito that I think, therefore, I am, all desire ultimately is an apprehension of both the thinker and automatically, not only the community that sustains him, but God who brought it all into being. 
the community didn't create, you know, cause and effect. In fact, the very fact that he's able to ask questions at all. So Descartes had a very incomplete approach and it had to be filled in later. So the entire system of, of transmuting desire into work and hence the things that, that we need, right, automatically has a connection to labor. It, it, it's, it's part of self-consciousness because Descartes, in the one truth that he can't deny, I think therefore I am, I have to be, if I deny that I think, well, I'm denying the denial. It's impossible to, to get out of that. But it's just so incomplete. And, and Descartes doesn't solve the problem. Of course, the I here is not self-sufficient. The thinker is not self-sufficient. It could never be. Therefore, the very act of that question is both communal and theological. Now, I don't want to take Hegel exceptionally literally. You know, in his, you know, in, 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 in um, philosophy of history and phenomenology, he brings us from the prehistoric death struggle to the emergence of slavery, for example, in ancient Greece and elsewhere, Stoicism to skepticism, and then mo uh, moving through the Middle Ages and eventually the scientific revolution in the modern state. People like Cuyiva and and um, and, uh, and and many others. I mean, Feuerbach and Marx sees this, the phases after the slave stage. Be just variations on the same theme. That's very convenient for them, but there is something to it. Hegel doesn't talk about history. I mean, he's a philosopher after all, but he doesn't use your kind of normal, like all historians use, things like um, economic change, or a powerful leadership, disease, or mass warfare, or something like that. Change, rather, in his mind, what's important to him, is consolidated. It's by the structure of our thought, the structure of Logos as we come to understand it. Self-consciousness is a big problem because there is a subconscious there. Part of the history of this process that we're talking about is taking things that are subconscious and bringing them to the light of day. That's what this progress, that's what this uh, set of phases is really about. Master thinking himself is free when in fact he's not. He, um, that the knowledge that deep down he knows is true. When I say deep down, it's in his subconscious. You know, if you're in denial about something, I mean pathologically, if you're in denial or you're projecting, you can't know you're doing that. Because if you know you're in denial, then you're not really in denial. That has to be filed away in the subconscious. Somehow it has to be brought to consciousness, the light of day. And that's what Hegel really is, is talking about here. And that's the foundation of a historical consensus, moving from one era or one place to another, accepted as basic by the thought leaders of the day. You know, the master-slave dialectic is based on the problem that recognition, the recognition of the master from the slave is worthless. He doesn't see the slave as an equal. He's recognized, again, because the slave has no other choice. Therefore, real recognition has to be from a fully free and rational 
self-conscious purse and nothing less. It's like charging a rent. Deep down, of course, the master knows this, but given the limitations of his era, he can't or won't. Hegel, of course, it all comes down to, he is a social nationalist. Hegel was very influential both in Italy and Germany, the beginning of the 20th century. And he makes war because of all of this, the ideologies of, of, of abstraction, the false universality of, of, and the only real big enemy here is liberalism, liberalism and materialism. And we're talking about stages of thought that may or may not be connected to stages in history. Stages here are, are logical more than chronological. That's not the case with Karl Marx, by the way. But we talk about a consensus, any given consensus of time. It's, we're talking about very general terms. But at some point, it's incompleteness. It's the problems inherent in it, the contradictions inherent in it, will eventually be exposed. And it slowly but surely eventually falls away. It's kind of like when we come to realize that a long-held belief of ours is false. That takes a while. We get to a point where we just can't explain the problems away, the holes in what it is. We can't explain it away. I was that way with the, with the unions. I couldn't explain it away anymore, and therefore, unless I fall into cognitive dissonance, I had to convert 20 years ago, 20, whatever it was. So the way each period, each era that we're talking about here, thinks, creates its own negation. Filling those holes ends up becoming a new, um, a new consensus. Now, we're talking about eras in history that they actually possess this, this sole consensus that each era can be explained solely using these problems and collective reason. That somehow an era of millions of people and centuries, you know, it's like reducing the entire Greek and Roman experience to slavery or stoicism. But it is significant, however, that those institutions and schools of thought develop then. Why then? Why not before? Why not after? That's the issue. Each era is comprehensible in our history, mentally and otherwise, only from within its own experience. It exists because it solved the past problem, but it's also creating some new ones. So any historian has to adopt the point of view of whatever that is to make sense out of the events there. You have to be in a certain headspace, so to speak. Why did feudalism develop just then? Why not, you know, a thousand years prior? Why only in some places? So, to sum up thus far, if we, if man were just striving for materialist bodily needs, then history would be impossible, and any historical progress would be impossible. Animals don't write history books. They don't worry about rights and duties. They exist at the level of self-preservation. There's a, a want and a satisfaction or not, and that's it. This is why Hegel talks about the concept or logos. The concept goes much deeper than just logical relations. Reason has been instinctively working throughout history. It's a condition of its possibility. We're rational animals, sure. That means our rationality would 
also, of course, be at work with the products of the human spirit. Our labor. Rationality, reason, logos, that's what makes human experience possible or even conceivable. Hegel says, spirit has won the pure element of its existence, the concept. The choice term for human process, that process of conceptualization, completely reconceiving logic. And it's found in logos or concept or spirit, and of course, God. Now, bodily experience, that is purely subjective. But this implies something beyond the subjective, an objective account of the world and how we can respond to it. The bodily experience, that's a system of needs. But of course, we're instinctively rational. So these desires, whether spiritual or otherwise, are never just given as they may be for for Stanley, but they're experienced as revealing information about the world around us, giving us motivations that aren't purely biological. And there isn't really a distinction between sensations on the one hand and intellectual perceptions of the world on the other, these more abstract and reflective claims that eventually are are called science. Each is meant to capture the world as it is, objectively. So our very reason, that's as much an instinct as pursuing prey is to to a feline, we are internally compelled to make reasoned or reasonable claims about what is true and in action what is moral. And that also is already said it has to be it has to be accepted by others. But ethnicity, that was already taken for granted. Now, what does this have to do with freedom? Modernity, not necessarily modernism, but modernity, if it's to be anything, has to be the final subconscious parts of our world are made conscious. When Hegel talks about freedom, or reason for that matter, he's not talking about the Enlightenment view of it. If reason... Logos is at the root of who we are, then freedom has to be at the root of who we are. Reason without freedom doesn't make any sense. Freedom without reason doesn't make any sense. The two imply each other. And logos is what unifies both. There's no biological imperative here. Man can always criticize anything we immediately feel or what we want, or what we say or what we do, or anybody else for that matter. That's part of the human constitution. We can't tolerate inconsistency or cognitive dissonance for long. Only the sociopath can, because there is no truth or good or anything else with those people. The experience of freedom or autonomy, that's the gateway to what we would call political maturity. Synonymous, really, with it. Any rational aspect of experience has to be preceded by freedom and vice versa. It wouldn't have any reason to exist otherwise. There's a very good reason why there are two sides of the same coin. If we're not free, then what is the point of reason? Why wouldn't we just be driven by instinct like the cats are? That doesn't make any sense. 
but to the extent that we're rational and instinctively demand that social beliefs be justified with reason, the ethnonation, of course, is unified by language and words, as we discussed, it has to be. The entirety of experience, then, is a product of deliberation, rather than just some mechanism as a consequence of our isolated observations. Spirit is the ground of the moral order. Hence, so is Logos, and hence, God, concept, whatever term we use, is all about the same thing. It's essentially his version of natural law. Spirit, for Hegel, is used to describe what brings about, among other things, the collective consciousness of a society. The nation, both objective, but in our case, seen as subjective. Citizens come to realize that we're part of the community. That's the foundation of ethnic culture. That's the foundation, hence, of a nation. It's only partly expressed in physical forms. And it really is extremely deep. It's really good, you know, almost impossible to get to the, the final bottom of it all. Spirit is located. It's not in, in things, although it, it, you know, it, it, it is present there. Not just in the mind, not just in things. But it is in the non-material realm of forms. Partially manifest through spirit in any specific ethnic culture. In the philosophy of right, this is what, this is what Hegel says. I know it's a bit on the abstract side. Let me quote it here. Spirit is a nature of human beings en masse, and their desire, and their nature is therefore twofold. One, at one extreme, explicit individuality of consciousness and will, and two, at the other extreme, universality which knows and wills what is substantial. Hence they attain their right in both these respects only in so far as both their private personality and their substantive basis are actualized. Now in the family and civil society, that's the free market, they acquire their right in the first of these respects directly and the second indirectly. In that one, they find their substantial self-consciousness in social institutions, which are the universal implicit in their particular interests, and two, the corporation or the guild supplies them with an occupation and an activity directed on a universal end. What the philosophy of right comes down to, and what all of this I've been saying comes down to, is that when we work, there is a market, there is a certain level of demand. We can't find our vocation unless it's something that's socially useful, unless it's something that people need. That's why collecting stamps could never be a vocation. It's not, it's not a human, it's not a social requirement. It's not that at all. It has to be something of social value. And of course, something that you could also make a living from. But because whatever it is you do has to be of social value, anything that you individually undertake is inherently social. The market proves to us that we are completely dependent on each other. And because we need a single language to be able to function at all, it is the foundation of the nation. And the transition point between sort of the you know, Lockean property idea, Adam Smith's this nonsense and invisible hand stuff, well, that's very incomplete. The transition point is the guild, the union represented in the upper house of Parliament and Hegel's system. Because it both accepts your personal desire to, you know, this is who I am, I want to pursue this, 
and translates it into the fact that this is socially useful. Those two things by themselves seem to you know, because capitalism, or at least the free market, talks about the individual and individual only, but the market is inherently national. Now, that's not how capitalism developed, but it is the intellectual foundation of being at home. Modernity is homesickness. It is a world of alienation. Modern life is almost inherently unhappy. Philosophy, in his case, is something to solve this problem. A philosophy of right is aimed at, at, at having the modern world heal itself from its errors. This is really what, what ethical theory does anyway. One author, one academic author said, Hegel's purpose is to understand the universal moral determining their overall reasonableness and mutual compatibility. In other words, he's talking about the reasonableness of present social institutions. That's what Hegel was trying to do. That couldn't be more incorrect. Therefore, whatever exists, Hegel wants to reconcile our wills to it. That is not true. What has emerged in our world is perversion. Hegel's doctrine is at least in part a cure. We're not, and, and this cannot be reconciled through manipulation or propaganda, but we come to know the truth and the state and the, and the national state provides our rationality with the proper insight into what it truly wants. Hegel says, however, we may at least hope that this surfeit will be effective in producing the general conviction that philosophical knowledge of such things cannot arise from argumentation, deduction, calculations of purpose or utility, still less from the heart, love, or inspiration, but only from the concept or the spirit. He shows utter contempt for the liberal political theory of his day. He wants to create persons, not individuals. Reconciliation, yes, this is an important purpose in Hegel's work, not just in his social theory. But he doesn't want to do things. One, one author talked about the reconciling individual liberty and human rights with social cohesion. They can't be reconciled. That is not what he's doing. The whole point of dialectics was to overcome these very simplified approaches to the social idea. No, Hegel is putting forth a nation. The nation based on labor that has its roots, not in just you know some accident, but in our rational human nature as such. He wasn't trying to reconcile the individual with the nation and state. You know, academics talk like this, you know, all the time. He's not presenting the postmodern sickness with a rational foundation. That is not what he's doing. Even John Rawls said that about him. The modern social order for Hegel is mostly repudiated. He digs to find workable things. He is a social nationalist of a, of a type. He doesn't want to reconcile the, the social world of advanced amoral capitalism and modernist dissolution, but the structured labor state based around a single language and national order. That's the substance with the capitalist that he talks about, the state. The concept of abstract personal and moral freedoms he rejected vehemently. But he realizes that they exist. 
And for them to be indicative of freedom, he has to show what they're really aiming at. Liberalism is based on public ignorance. Liberalism doesn't have any aim. It doesn't have any purpose, really, except to permit the market to function, permit capitalism to function. Civil society has its role, but the corporations and guilds, Hegel lays out, that's what provides a national purpose to the economic diversity that everyone needs. I'm going to end here with a quote. This is um, a remark. He has it. The philosophy of right is strangely structured, but section 258, here's what he says. If the state is confused with civil society or the market, and if its specific end is laid down as security and protection of property and personal freedom, then the interest of the individuals as such becomes the ultimate end of their association, and it follows that membership in the state is something optional. But the state's relation to the individual is very different from this. Since the state is mind-objectified, it is only as one of its members that the individual himself has objectivity, genuine individuality, and ethical life. This is an extremely illiberal statement. There is someone who does say that because they allow individual, he's talking about, you know, um, um, Hegel's view of the state. One of the things it does is to allow individual members to develop and express diverse but complementary types of identity, each of which is indispensable to realizing the complete range of relationships to others and to yourself that's available. Goals that are worthy of achieving because of personal, moral, and socio-political freedoms they make possible. Yes, diverse and complementary, yes, they mean one thing to postmoderns, quite another to us. Social roles aren't necessarily freely chosen, but that doesn't mean they aren't free. Personal choice is not the be-all and end-all of things. He cancels liberal errors concerning freedom, integrates that concept both with the ethnic community and the entirely new idea of what logos and freedom entail. This is in addition to Section 274. A constitution is not something manufactured. It's the work of centuries. It's the idea the consciousness of our reason insofar as that consciousness is developed in a particular nation. No constitution, therefore, is just a creation of its subjects. A nation's constitution must embody its feelings for its rights and its position. Otherwise, there may be a constitution there in an external way, but it is meaningless and valueless. The context of him saying that is Napoleon trying to impose a constitution on the Spanish, which didn't take into consideration what they found important. The Spanish tradition, therefore, it failed miserably. You can't impose a constitution. It is the work of centuries. Now, of course, as always, I didn't get you know to finish everything I wanted to talk about. Comes down to the nation, the linguistic community, as the very expression of individual freedom. Reason demands and compels us to make reason claims about what's true and right. These are rationally binding things. Things that don't make sense cannot stand for long. Of course, you know, Hegel didn't live in 2024. Not because of some biological demand for survival, though. Reason, for it to function at all, requires group identities mediated through language, the very foundation of the ethno-nation. Reason is inherently social. It can't exist without the social. 
the convergence of shared outlooks and goals relative to the specifics of the nation and the language. The nation, therefore, is not only natural, it is the basis of the language where any thought is even possible. It's the solution, the synthesis in the political realm of this I and we dilemma that ideologies like liberalism simply cannot solve. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you again next time. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.